Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. Please join me for The Road Taken, celebrity maps to success for those of us still seeking ours. Tuesdays, 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 Central, 9 p.m. Eastern on Conversations Radio Network. Shelly Pikett, and that's my song, Bitch. Well, the one I wrote with Meredith Brooks. I tell all about how it happened in Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, a memoir about my adventures and misadventures on the front line of the songwriting business. You can also hear about Christina, Brittany, Keith Urban, and many more. But my book isn't just about songwriting. It's about passion, pursuit, perseverance for any dream you may have. Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, available on Amazon or a bookstore near you. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh my God, oh yes! She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicki's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon. Vicki wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon. Welcome to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken. Vicki's the creator and host of the renowned celebrity-driven literary salon, Women Who Write, and the author of Amazon bestseller, Don't Jump. Here's Vicki.
Before we get into tonight's show, I want to acknowledge, because I haven't done it every week, that uh, To Thine Own Self Be True was written by Frank Housen and sung by Bernard Fowler. I love that song so much. And I want to thank Louise Palanker for her fantastic Ridge Rock Studios, home of the Journals Network for this fabulous studio that we're recording in. Um, and I want to thank you, Justin. You're, you're a wizard over there. You've been doing a fabulous job, and I feel so blessed to have you on the show. Thank you. No problem. So tonight, I'm kind of uh, readying to... Um, <sighs> my daughter is starting to pack things. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be taking her off to college really soon. And um, she's my baby, and I'm, I'm feeling it. Where did you go to school, Justin? Where did you go to college? Uh, I actually didn't go to college. I went uh-huh. to the trade school called Los Angeles Recording School. Ah, there you go. Yeah. And did you, my son stayed home during college. He went to a commuter college. He went to CSUN and, and so he's stayed at home. Did you live at home? Did you, what'd you do? Yeah, I lived at home while I went to school. See, now this is a very nice thing to do for your parents. I really appreciate the fact that Harry stayed with me and I've still got Harry. I'm going to lock the door when he tries to leave. I'm not letting him go. Um, But I I am going to have to let Samantha go. And of course, we are from New York. We had an apartment in New York, which we just sold two years ago after being bi-coastal for a a decade. And of course, now she's going to be living there and she could have used that apartment. Instead, she's going to pay a fortune for a dormitory. No, but it's good because she should have that experience. But anyway, I'm traumatized. I'm traumatized that she's going, and I'm trying to figure out something really exciting to do when I get back so that I will have something to look forward to, because otherwise I might be a really horrific, depressing pile of of weepy tears in the studio when I get back. (laughs) But I can't think of anything. Somebody was saying, you know, go to a spa or go to France. It's like, I don't want to do that (laughs) shit alone. I don't have a man in my life. That's something I'm going to, I'm going to bitch. Tonight's guest is Jim Beaver. So Justin, you a Justified fan by any chance? Yes, very much. Fantastic. Jim's amazing. And uh, his character was really good on that show, too. Yeah, he's he's incredible. I was just I was listening tonight to a, a Deadwood video where all they did was a compilation of all the cuss words that everybody <laughs> said on that show. And it went on forever. And like I would have been so at home on Deadwood. I, <laughs> I belonged on Deadwood. But anyway, so Deadwood um, Supernatural. Now he's huge Supernatural. Um, but the thing about Jim is that he's a renaissance man. He's a playwright. He's a screenwriter. He's a memoirist. Um, and he, Actually, he came to Women Who Write, and he read from Life's That Way, which is the story of his wife's passing from cancer. His, he was married to Cicely Adams, Don Adams uh, from Get Smart, his daughter, and it was a mad love affair in, in the best way. And um, they had just had a baby, and um, his wife found out she was dying, and he was writing these emails. Well, I'm not going to tell you about the book, because Jim and I will talk about that. But anyway, he was writing these emails, and he ended up writing this book, and he came to Women Who Write, and he read to us. And it was possibly the most passionate reading I have ever heard in my life. You know, take an actor like that and have him read his own words— and oh my, and he's also a playwright and he's performed in his own plays. So the man knows what he's doing. We were bawling. I mean, we were <laughs> absolutely sobbing. He is just the most sensitive, beautiful man. When uh, I asked him for a blurb for my 
book. He wrote me the most incredibly beautiful. Oh, he's he's just he's a beautiful man. He writes beautifully. He performs from his heart, from his soul. He started out as a writer. One of his passions is that he wants to write a biography about actor George Reeves, the guy who plays Superman. Yeah. And in fact, he's still working on it, which is crazy. So he moved to California to work on that, and he ended up working for a year as a film archivist for the Variety Arts Center. Hmm. And um, after a reading of his, a play that he wrote called Vetigris, which was 30 years ago, he was asked to join Theater West out here. And uh, he continues to do theater there. And actually, I saw uh, a revival of that play just a few months ago that he starred in. 30 years later, they did a revival. Fantastic. But anyway, he then got signed to an acting agency, you know, to Triad Artists Agency. Uh, oh, no, he did that as a writer. And he began writing episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which is way before your time. And I don't know if they have that on TV land. Do They probably don't. Do it's they? on TV, but is it's it? not on TV land. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen an Alfred Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Have you ever seen one? I have. Yeah. Okay. They are unbelievable. Really I need good. I need to talk to Jim about this because I didn't even know this about him. And he um, got a Cable Ace Award nomination for his first TV script, which is crazy. Wow. Anyway, so he was in the Writers Guild and he, he wrote all this stuff. And then he had a chance meeting to be cast as the best friend of Bruce Willis in in country and that started this huge acting career his films have included sister act bad girls um adaptation magnolia sliver and then he did all this incredible tv work he's he's guest starred on breaking bad he had a recurring role on better call saul he was on um third rock from the sun he had a recurring character for a couple of seasons he's done so much tv oh he was in dexter he was a really creepy character yeah. in dexter did, did do you did you watch dexter i did watch dexter okay, it was really good so dexter's that crazy blonde girl, girl, that crazy mm-hmm. one. Yeah, Jim Beaver was her dad. Yeah, I, oh, I remember. Oh, you remember? Yeah. yeah, yeah oh God, that he was so creepy in that. Yeah. Um, and it's great because he can be really creepy. He can be really funny. He can be really heartfelt. He's just an incredibly talented guy. He wrote and directed the short film Night Riders, based on his play of the same title. He got a Lifetime Merit Achievement Award from the Idlewild International Festival of Cinema. Just recently, he had the revival of his play Vetigris. And then most recently, he just played Big Daddy in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and got the most stellar reviews that the, the whole production did. But Jim especially was singled out. I just so wish I could have seen it or they would have filmed it. And he he di- he does. You have to friend him on Facebook. He's fantastic. I don't know if he can take any more friends. Probably not. He has so many fans <laughs> and followers. But follow him because his posts are amazing. They're really, really thoughtful and heartfelt and thorough. And he's so intelligent and he's such a good writer. And um, so he would do like this this journal on Facebook every day of what the experience was through the whole rehearsal process then at, at each performance like one night there was a bat in the theater and they they were like trying to perform while this bat is like flying over people's heads and then they, like, they had to stop the show and like get the bat out and come back and do it again but anyway his missives about his life and then he has this daughter Maddie that he's raised as a single dad. And so I'm sure he's going to understand. He, he just spent seven weeks away from her. So he's going to feel my pain losing my Samantha. But anyway, he's, he's an incredible dad, a uh, devoted father, and is giving her all these 
incredible experiences. Just a beautiful man that I adore, and I I feel so blessed to uh, to be able to pick his brain tonight because we're gonna go in. We're gonna get in there, Justin. We're gonna get in there, <laughs> and we're gonna find out. You know, how did he do all that? Like, where did it start? Where where did it go? How did it get here? And because that's what The Road Taken is all about. The Road Taken is about the journey. So, Justin, please help me welcome our guest tonight, Jim Beaver. Thank you for coming, Jim. I'm so grateful to you for doing this with me. I will come anywhere for you. I love that about you. You're, you're so great. I was talking about you coming to the living room and how you had us all bawling our eyes out as you read from your book, which we'll talk about a little later. But I want to introduce you to Justin Lebens, sound engineer extraordinaire. Hey, hey. Justin. And Louise Palanker, who is uh, Louise. Uh, the owner of the studio, Ridge Rock Studios, here in the beautiful Hollywood Hills. So anyway, so this show is really... To kind of help and inspire people like me who are still trying to navigate our way to our big success. Because, you know, I've, I've had some success in my life. I think a lot of us have had some success, but we really haven't lived the dream. And you seemingly live the dream. You'll tell us if that's so or not. Okay, so let's start there. When you were a little kid, did you have a dream, a goal, a plan that you adhered to? Did it change? What did you want to be when you grew up, when you were little? Um... I don't have a strong recollection of wanting to be anything particular when I grew up until the late part of high school, mid mid to late high school. A couple of things happened. One was I got deeply involved in movies, just watching them and keeping track of the actors who were in them. And I heard you're sort of a historian of film. Yeah. Yeah. It's, buff. yeah. It's, it's a thing I do. And, and, and that started in... How, did, did something spark that for you? I think it probably had more to do initially with hero worship. I was a big John Wayne fan as a young kid. Okay. And so I would watch anything he was in. And then I began to notice there were these other kind of interesting people who were in lots of his movies. And I'd start figuring out who they were by looking at the cast list. And then I'd start watching all of their movies. And it just spread like that until I had this list of about 35 favorite actors that I was watching everything they were in. Like, can you name a couple of others? Gary Cooper, Randolph Scott, uh-huh. Ward Bond. And, Which and is Humphrey interesting because that's very much the kind of acting that you do. Well, there you go. Who'd have thunk? Well, that's living the dream. Yeah, you know, and as I got a little further into high school, I had always been a pretty good writer in terms of essays and, and things like that, and I got some encouragement to go into writing, and I thought, maybe I'll be a film historian. Maybe I'll write books about film history, and I did eventually. Mm -hmm. uh, by the time I had gotten out of the service and gotten out of college, I was doing that, but um, I didn't have this great sense that I need to be this. I mean, you know, there was the, oh, I'm going to be a baseball player. I'm going to be a jet pilot. Or, you know, all of that stuff. Right. But when you're little. Mm -hmm. little. But um, by the time I was ready to get out of high school, in my senior year, yearbook thing where they fill, mm -hmm. you know, here's what you're going to be. I said, I'm going to buy a schooner and sail around the world writing. <laughs> Uh, nice. But Did your parents have a plan for you? Were they supportive of what you wanted to do? You know, it's really interesting. My dad was a minister. Mm -hmm. And uh, my whole growing up, I thought that's what he wanted me to be. He came from a family of ministers. Um, I had ministers on my mother's side of the family oh, wow. as well. I mean, uh -huh. it was a, a lot of it. And I always presumed that's what he wanted me to be. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I felt like I had really disappointed him by not taking that path. Did I you ever have interest in no. that? No. I, no, I didn't. I, I, I just, you know, you got to have a calling. Yeah. And I didn't. Uh, of course, years and years later, I mentioned it to him and he said, 
I don't care if you became a minister. I never did care. Wow. But, you know, I just want you to be a good guy. And uh, Well, he certainly uh, raised you to do that. Well, you know, it's I had a good be role there. model. But um, I had read an, the autobiography of an actor named Sterling Hayden. Mm-hmm which is to this day still my favorite nonfiction book. Is that so? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's called Wanderer. And he wrote about sailing around the world on a schooner writing. And it was a great book, but it inspired me to at least consider the possibility of being a writer. And when I got out of the service and went to college, I planned to be a film history writer. But... That was a long time ago, mm-hmm. and you couldn't find film history courses in almost any place except Where'd LA. you go to college? I started at uh, what is now Oklahoma Christian University, outside Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. and uh, after a year there, I was um, substantively excommunicated. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, tell us that story. Well, Why is, <laughs> what happened? Oh, they just, um, I'm a night owl, and I would go to sleep about 2 o'clock in the morning and mm-hmm. miss all my morning classes. <laughs> And um, as a result of that little piece of information, they decided that I was, um, well, they didn't call it the Antichrist. They called it an (laughs) existentialist. (laughs) How sleeping late makes one an existentialist, I don't know. But that's what they decided. And they said, you know, maybe this isn't the place for you. Would you please leave? You know, I'm terrified. My daughter's going to NYU Mm -hmm. in a few weeks. And I was just talking about this with Justin before you came in. And I'm terrified because she has never gotten up from her alarm ever mm-hmm. and it will literally go off for like an hour and she'll just sleep well through i've it. got a hint for her. she can do what i did what it, okay i had my alarm clock yeah. set i had a microphone set on the floor next to the alarm <laughs> clock and it went to my stereo system which i had on record <laughs> and had the volume turned all the way up and mm-hmm. my alarm would go off and the entire block would shake oh my god and sometimes it got me up <laughs> <laughs> Are so, you still a heavy sleeper? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, because uh, now you have you. you I've have, got a kid now. Yeah, you have a kid, and, and that you have to wake you, up for work. And well, you know, there's a thing about having a kid. I mean, mm-hmm. I started late. I was 51 when my daughter was born. Mm-hmm. I discovered that all she has to do is inhale late, <laughs> and I'm up. Uh, a cough, I'm flying into the other room. Uh, so. Uh, uh, but so I, Samantha just has to have a kid before she goes to school, and then we're all set. Okay. Well, then God you're unset yeah, another yeah, way. Yeah, but that won't be happening. Yeah. So, uh, okay, so you got thrown out of school. And so I went across town to the local state university, which mm-hmm. is now called the University of Central Oklahoma. Okay. And I went to school there. And, and you majored in writing? Theater. In, th- in theater. And that's what I was getting at. You, okay. They didn't have film history courses mm-hmm. in middle America in those days. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well theater sounds kind of close to film. Maybe I'll just take theater classes and see what that's like. Did you do plays when you were in yeah, high school? Yeah, not in high school. No, no. You, didn't, no. you didn't act at all? No. Do you remember the first thing you were in, the first play <laughs> you were in? Well, I had done a couple of things in elementary school. Okay, good. Do you remember the first? Oh, sure. What was yeah. it? It was uh, uh, Sleeping Beauty. And, and who were you? I was a, not the, court jester. And did you have a line? <laughs> I had no lines. No lines. <laughs> They had taken the little, you know, the little golden books that uh, yeah, yeah. kids read. They had taken the Sleeping Beauty edition, and they had duplicated on stage all of the pictures that were in the book. And I was a court jester asleep on my face <laughs> with my ass in the air. 
and that was my stage debut. Love it. Okay, and then I still get fan letters. <laughs> okay, so then now you're in college. You're, now I'm in college. But you became a theater major without having really acted. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because that was the way you were going to get the history of theater. Well, it, a couple of things happened at the same time. Okay, One go ahead. was theater s- seemed close to film, and I figured it'll do me some good. And but at the same time, the first day or so of school, when I hadn't even decided a major yet. Mm-hmm. The guy across the hall from me in the dorm asked me if I would be his scene partner in his audition for the campus theater group. And Isn't I said, it sure. always the way. And You uh, get the part and he didn't get in. Um, well, I got the part and he's doing life in the New Mexico pen. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So I'm so glad I got the part. Um, I hate New Mexico. No, I mean, it's lovely. I'm sure thousands of listeners are there doesn't right Jim now. Doesn't Jim have the best? You have like the best resonant radio voice. You have like a perfect, <laughs> doesn't he have a great radio voice? Yeah, you have a great yeah. voice. I don't hear it, but my answering machine yeah. at home, I, yeah, my voicemail. Right. We don't have answering machines anymore. <laughs> I do. Actually, uh, so do I. <laughs> Because <laughs> we're dinosaurs. There's probably 40 messages on there that start out something like, Hi, this is Mrs. Jones from the credit department at Sears. We'd like to... My God, are you on the radio or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. You have the perfect radio I, voice. You know, um, so we did this audition. Mm-hmm. I thought, this is really fun. They asked me to join the campus players. I did. Uh, I had six lines in The Miracle Worker. Who were you? I was the doctor. The doctor. You know, I said, I am, I had the first lines in the play. I was going to say, do you remember your first lines? Yeah. Go ahead. She'll live. <laughs> she'll be deaf, dumb, blind, bump into walls, but she'll live. <laughs> <laughs> I may be paraphrasing. <laughs> but I remember, I remember yeah. the specific moment. I'm standing on stage. It was a big theater. I had a real curtain. Mm-hmm. I'm standing there in the dark, pitch black. I have the first line in the play. The curtain goes up. I'm shocked to discover that you can't see the audience uh-huh. because the lights are so bright. Right. But I could feel them out there breathing or breeding. <laughs> and, uh, and this thought went through my head. Two thoughts went through my head at exactly the same time. One was, the play doesn't start until I talk. <laughs> Power. Power. <laughs> and the other one was, this is what I'm doing the rest of my life. Wow. In and, that moment. Yeah, that moment. I said, nothing I have ever felt in my life feels like this and what? I haven't even spoken yet. Wow. Okay. So let's go back a little bit just because okay. I'm curious. So out of high school, Vietnam War, nineteen seventy, mm-hmm. you enlist in the Marines? Sixty eight. Okay, now was that before the lottery or was that I didn't have a draft card till after I got out. Okay, so why did you enlist? The short version is temporary insanity. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the longer version is that I was the runt of the litter among my clan of friends. Mm -hmm. They were all a year older than I was, and they all graduated the year before I did. And four of them joined the Marines together. Mm -hmm. And I was literally the runt of the litter. I was a skinny, skinny kid, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I couldn't run three feet. And there's no athleticism whatsoever in me. (laughs) And um, I got all these letters back from them while they were in the service saying, good God, whatever you do, don't join the Marines. (laughs) And I realized later that they were trying to protect me. But my initial reaction was that they don't think I can hack it. And so right after I graduated, 
there I went. Wow. And the very first night I was in boot camp, I was begging to be let out. <laughs> it was the scariest, most horrifying thing I had. I, I was so absolutely clear on the fact that I had made the biggest mistake of my life. Oh, my God. How did you get through boot camp? Like, how did you do all the push-ups? How did you do all that stuff? When somebody threatens to pull your larynx out... <laughs> You do push-ups. Uh, but that, what if you can't? Like Judy Benjamin, she just couldn't get over the... You figure th out how. Wow. You levitate or something. Oh, my God. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I got. Okay, so what was the best of times of it? I came out of it feeling like a man and not a little boy. I went into it feeling like a boy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'd been a skinny kid in high school, and my friends called up girls to get dates for me because I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I came out of the Marines feeling like... I didn't feel like John Wayne, but I felt like people thought of me a little more in that way. How long were you in the Marines? Three years active and another five in the reserves. Wow. Yeah. And you went to Vietnam? Yeah. Okay, so what was that like? Hot. <laughs> were you in, like, combat? Uh, a little. Very. You little. were a radio? I was... I was <laughs> the Marines. Oh, radio. There you go. I was fairly gifted with languages. Uh, I had studied As German. As you still are. Quite good with the English language, I would well, say. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, darling. And I, I, I wanted to be a translator. I thought, because I had studied German in high school and mm -hmm. was pretty good at it, mm -hmm. that I could get sent to Germany, mm -hmm. which seemed better than Vietnam. Yeah. At least at that particular point in time. At that particular time. time. Yeah, yeah, 40 years earlier, <laughs> you so switch much. them. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, 40 years earlier, neither one of them was yeah, very good. Was, but, yeah. So I, I thought, yeah, you know, I took the translator's test, and I did very well on it. Oh, wow. However, the Marines weren't in Germany. The Army was in Germany. Uh -huh. The Marines were in Vietnam. And so they looked at my aptitude score, saw that I was verbally very high scoring, mm -hmm that I had almost no scientific or math skills whatsoever, <laughs> and they sent me to uh, radio repair school because I had no math or science skills. <laughs> Interesting. There's an old cartoon in, in the Marine Corps magazine, and it shows these two recruiters, and one of them says, remind me, uh, which bakery school do we send nuclear physicists to? <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of it. They put me where I was uh, least useful. <laughs> I spent a year in electronics school, and uh, graduated 24th in a class of 25. <laughs> and it was all on a, on a curve. Nobody failed. So uh, the 25th guy might very well have slept through every class. <laughs> but, you know, it was only the security of the nation at stake. So uh, Did you oversleep in the Marine? Like, what would happen if you overslept in the Marine? There was uh, a possibility of getting stood up against a wall and shot. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't do that so much of that yeah it really goes to show that you can you can learn to do anything if death is at the other <laughs> end of the equation i'll have to tell my daughter about that yeah. okay so you know the, being in the marines also had a bit of an influence on me in terms of my career how so i had a buddy i, I spent the first two years i was in uh, stationed at various places here in california uh, mainly 29 Palms and San Diego. Mm -hmm. And I, I had a friend who lived in Long Beach, mm -hmm. and uh, we were stationed together, and we would come up to his house in Long Beach every weekend and hang out. And he would tell me these stories about doing high school plays and how much he enjoyed it and how much fun it was. And he had these books of plays, and we would act scenes out 
you know, because we were tough Marines, and that's what you do on the weekend. <laughs> stand around a garage acting out scenes from the importance of being earnest. Um, so um, that kind of lay in the back of my head somewhere that he had had so much fun doing that. Uh-huh. And then while I was in Vietnam, I stumbled across an old beat-up copy of the complete works of Shakespeare. And, you know, we were starving to read anything mm. we could find, uh, you know, reading the backs of ammo boxes and stuff. And, and so I said, well, this guy's supposed to be good. I guess I'll, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll read it. And I, and I read everything. Wow. I didn't understand most of it, mm-hmm. but I read it all. And so those two things that kind of primed the pump a little bit. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about I'm going to be an actor when I get out of here. But by the time I was in a position where... It was real easy to be one in mm-hmm. college. Mm-hmm. I, I think the seed had already slightly been planted. Mm-hmm. And the next thing that happened was uh, right here tonight. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay, so so you did your time in the service. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you have any of those deer hunter kind of things? Not quite like that. I didn't see much in the way of combat, as I mentioned. I saw a little. I mm-hmm. saw enough to know that I didn't care for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst of what I saw, um, one of my best friends, one of those four guys who joined the Marines, mm-hmm. Uh, ended up stationed a mile or so away from me in Vietnam. And whenever I could pull some some time away, I would go over and visit him. And he worked at uh, Marine Corps' first medical battalion, which was basically the equivalent of a MASH unit. Uh-huh. And we would go over there and hang out and uh, drink and tell stories and uh, have fun. And then every once in a while, a bunch of helicopters would come in and start dropping off wounded and dead bodies. And when that happened, everybody on the base ran out and grabbed stretchers and helped. uh, helped. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were some awful things to see and uh, some awful experiences that I experienced only tangentially by Mm -hmm. seeing them. I was never wounded by anybody on the other side. Uh, I did get stabbed in the hand by an idiot from Corbin, Kentucky. Did you um, really? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was trying to stab rats in the guard bunker and uh, stab me instead. Oh, nice. So, uh, but um, and that th- didn't get you out of there, huh? No, and it didn't give me a purple heart either. Although I think he was far more dangerous to our country than the <laughs> Viet Cong were. <laughs> so. Yeah, most of my experiences there were, you know, they say war is days and days and days of of sheer boredom punctuated by moments of terror. Mm. Uh, The boredom part was most of my experience. Mm. It was, you know, you did your job and you sat around and... uh, but a lot of your job was to just sit there in the dark and look out into the dark and hope nobody, hope you didn't see anybody. Wow. And... uh, when your job is sitting in the dark, staring into the dark, it's boring and awful. And, and you know, you, you make some good friendships because you got all the time in the world to tell stories. And, mm. and uh, you know, I, I, I had the beginnings of my uh, uh, political beliefs there. And huh? uh, it was the whole thing of being in the Marines for the eight years I spent in one version of it or another was awful and I wouldn't trade it for anything. How did you get from the private Benjamin I want to go home to I'm going to stay for more years here? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm really curious. You, well, uh, it, that growth I talked about, that that thing of going from being a boy but feeling like one mm-hmm. to feeling like I could take care of myself, that I was strong enough to be a substantial person because of the things I'd learned and the confidence. I mean, that's the big thing. The Marine Mm -hmm. Corps just 
drills confidence into you. They start out by taking it all away. <laughs> With your dignity. Yeah, yeah. And they make you feel utterly worthless mm. and utterly without meaning. Mm -hmm. And then they pack you full of new meaning and wow. new strength and new courage and new confidence. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. So it was more personal empowerment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Serving one's country. I mean, it was there was that. My dad had, had served uh, in the Pacific during mm -hmm. World War II, mm -hmm. and uh, most of my uncles had. And, uh, I mean, there was a tradition, certainly. Mm -hmm. And when I went in, I thought I was, you know, being a participant in my country mm -hmm. uh, and doing good. It wasn't my job to figure out whether what we were doing was the right thing. But to be there when my country said, we need you. But that wasn't the main thing. The main thing was I wanted to follow my friends and I wanted to be one of them. And if they could do it, I could. And uh, all of the benefits that accrued to me were kind of coincidental. So while you were there, at some point, did it occur to you, okay, this war of Vietnam, why we, did any of that? So you yeah, said oh, you yeah. started to yeah. become aware of that. I joined Vietnam Veterans Against the War while I was there. Oh, wow. And, that must uh, have gone over real big. Well, they sent your stuff in an unmarked envelope. <laughs> <laughs> it was not. A, it was not a way to make yourself popular with the brass. Yeah. But I, you know, I remember uh, uh, an evening on guard duty. We we're all sitting around, and once or twice a night, the officer of the guard would come by and check out the different guard posts and make sure everything was okay. And we got into a conversation one night with him, and he was a young lieutenant. He'd just been shipped over, and he was more scared than we were because by then we'd been there a while. Mm -hmm. But he got to talking with us in a way that officers almost never talked with enlisted men. And he started telling us about why he was there and, you know, how he saw, you know, the good that his country was doing. And we went, and we were all like, are you kidding, man? We're not doing anything for these people except messing up their world. Mm -hmm. And these three other guys and myself talked to this lieutenant for like two hours and by the time it was over, he was completely questioning his career choice <laughs> because we had shown him how all the platitudes that were being handed out to the American people about why we were there mm -hmm. were all contaminated by all the reasons we were there that they weren't telling anybody about. And uh, while we were in an honorable profession, mm -hmm. we were also pawns of something that wasn't necessarily good either for our country or the country we were fighting in. Mm -hmm. You know, there were all types there, just as there are all types here. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I respect anybody's beliefs as long as they don't get us all sent down the toilet. But that's where that started with me. Okay, so you get out of the military and you're in college and you get on stage and you have this incredible experience and you, this is what I want to do. Mm. But you go into write. You write first, more um, as a profession than, than acting at the beginning? Well, no. No. Well, for one thing, it was back in 1814. I can't remember <laughs> it that well. But, uh, once I started acting, mm -hmm. everything became a distant second place. And uh, I was still incredibly interested in film history. Mm -hmm. I set up a film society at the school and uh, ran film for the students and, and wrote about them. I still had the dream of writing professionally about film history, but it was a while before I got around to doing that. Mm -hmm. Not a long while. I wrote my first book while I was in college. And, it was uh, published, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And, there you go. You know, I thought it was pretty easy because the first publisher I sent it to bought it. And uh, I thought, wow, this stuff's 
easy. <laughs> and not so much. Yeah, tell that to me. Yeah. Published my first book at uh, 60. Yeah. Well, I kept at that, and mm-hmm. I still keep at it. I still mm-hmm. write film history. I'm still working on on. Are you working books. on George Reeves still? I'm still working on George Reeves, you know. So tell me the root of that. Well, that's a flash forward. Uh, I was out of college. I had begun writing for a film magazine in New York. How did that happen? I read the magazine intently. And I wrote to the editor and said, I'd like to write something for you guys. And he said, send me something. So I reviewed a couple of movies for him, and he published them. And uh, he said, what else do you want to write? And so I started writing historical articles about biographical pieces mainly. That's like a less sexy, almost famous Cameron Crowe's story about. Way (laughs) less sexy. (laughs) Okay, so let me try to get this because this is kind of the the root of it here. You're in school all day. Mm -hmm. You're coming home. You're right. I mean, you're driven. You have passion. Mm -hmm. Are you looking at a big picture? Do you have an end game or is it just the journey itself that's thrilling you? What's going on? With the acting? Well, both. You're writing. Well, I mean, they're different. Oh, okay. With acting... It was, this is what I'm going to do for a living. Mm -hmm. This is how I'm going to make my living, and and this is something I'm going to excel in to the point where I can make a real living. Excellent. I mean, I I never articulated it to myself like that, but it was, this is what I'm going to do. I learned a very great lesson that has served me very well, and that's don't have a plan B. That was uh, going to be the name of the show. No plan. Oh yeah? No plan B. That I wanted to name it that. Well, I was getting ready to graduate, and I went into a talk with a guidance counselor about what I was going to do, and she said, "You know, when you came in here four years ago, you talked about you know getting your teaching degree and everything. Why didn't you ever take education classes?" And I just stared at her and thought, "Oh, I forgot." <laughs> <laughs> I literally had said, I'm going to get a teaching degree because that I can make money if I need it mm. while I'm trying to do this other. But I was so single-minded as to what I wanted to do that I never thought about it again. And then it was time to get out of school, and I mm-hmm. had forgotten to do it. And in my case, I don't necessarily recommend this for everybody, mm-hmm. but in my case... Success had a certain amount to do with not knowing how to do anything else. Mm. But it's a little facile because I'm not an idiot. I know how to do some things. You know how to do a lot of things. But I don't have a lot of things I can do well that would make me any money. Okay. Unless fate intervened. And in in my case, uh, it's intervened a couple of times Mm -hmm. because I've written a lot of things over the years that have gone nowhere. Most of the stuff I've written has gone nowhere, but a couple have done just fine. Mm-hmm. And I've acted in way more Your stuff than IMDb, I can imagine. Your IMDb, uh, my, uh, my hand was cramping <laughs> from scrolling how long it is. Oh, my God. Well, use a smaller font. <laughs> uh, I found that helps. Uh, but When you were starting... And you were on the stage, and I, mm-hmm. and you are a playwright, and I saw Vetegris, and, and I loved it. So the stage drew you, but also mm-hmm. you're this film buff. How did you become a film actor? Um, that came, surprisingly, out of my writing. Uh, you mentioned my play Vertigris. I mentioned it earlier, too, the, the 30th anniversary. Right. There you go. Well, the, thir- the original production, mm-hmm. uh, 31 years ago now, it was the initiating factor for my acting career, which is weird because I wasn't in it. Um, I just wrote it. It was done here in L.A., and it was very successfully done. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine who was a television writer 
invited his agent to see it. Mm -hmm. The agent signed me. As a writer? As a writer. Okay. And uh, at the time, one of the biggest agencies in town. It was huge. Mm -hmm. And the guy who signed me was the head of the company. So it was a major step. I didn't know what to do with it, but he was sending my play out to different people, and Mm -hmm. I started writing television. And I was doing a lot of television. Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which freaks me. I love that show. I love that show. Just just to make things clear, this was the revival of it in the 80s. This wasn't the original in the 50s. Well, you're a little young to have been writing on the original show. Yeah. 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 Uh I was was about the right age to drool on the original (laughs) show, but... Um, Still, pretty so, cool and that credit. Was, and that was my uh, my first writing gig for Alfred Hitchcock, and uh, and I wrote several of those, and and I I started getting a lot of jobs because this was the mid late '80s, and Hollywood was finally starting to take a consistent look at Vietnam, and so Vietnam vets who wrote television were few and far between, Mm -hmm. and I kind of became one of the handful of go-to guys for that stuff. So I wrote a number of Vietnam projects, and uh, I was acting. You were doing both? Well, I was uh, getting a bit part on Young and the Restless, you know, a a day player Uh stuff. You know, I was getting a job once, maybe twice a year in a bit part because I knew somebody on the show. Were you auditioning all the time or no, it would just happen? No, because I didn't have agents. No. Uh-huh. I didn't have an agent. Mm-hmm. There were people interested in me, but they were interested in me as a writer. Mm-hmm. And in those days, you could make a really good living as a freelance writer mm-hmm. in television. Mm-hmm. And also in those days, one thing I really loved about it was there was a plethora of anthology shows, which meant that each week was a different story with right. different characters, mm-hmm. and you didn't have to come into a show and suddenly know everything that ever happened to Bobby Sue mm-hmm. in the last nine seasons. Right. You could come in and create an original story. Like Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Like Alfred Hitchcock, right. exactly. Uh-huh. And that was great mm-hmm. because uh, the one thing that eventually led me away from television writing was I wasn't all that crazy about writing about other people's characters and other people's storylines. Uh, I wanted to make up my own stuff. I wanted Mm -hmm. to write about what I was interested in Mm -hmm. rather than, okay, what can Andy and Opie do this week? (laughs) So to get back to the crossover, Mm -hmm. I was writing television, and then in the spring of 88, the Writers Guild went on strike, Mm -hmm. and it was on strike for five months. Mm -hmm. And that had a general effect that affected me, but it also had a very, very specific effect. The general effect was that when the strike was over, the freelance market for writers had completely gone away. Oh, wow. Because staff writers figured out they could write all this stuff themselves. Mm -hmm. They could write faster than they had realized, and they stopped hiring freelance writers. Mm -hmm. It used to be half the episodes of a season would be freelance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that just died, Mm -hmm. which meant my career died because I didn't want to take a staff job because I wanted to be free to act if something came up. Uh So... All of a sudden, the writer's strike came, and I never made another nickel in my life from writing television. Wow. Uh, other than residuals. Uh-huh. And, you know, I got one for 17 cents the other day. That was good. <laughs> but the specific thing that happened was in the middle of the strike, I was sitting in my uh, one of my literary agent's offices, and um, we were just... Ch- shooting the breeze we did it almost every day because there was nothing to do right i couldn't legally write Mm -hmm. and he couldn't pitch anything right so everybody just sat in place waiting for the strike to be over Mm -hmm. and we were sitting there one day and i finally after a couple of hours of just chewing the fat i said i gotta go home before traffic gets too heavy and 
He walked me to the door, and as we got to the door, a woman was walking by, and he said, oh, hold on a second. He said, Eileen. And this woman named Eileen came over, and he said, I want to introduce you to Jim. He's one of our writer clients. And uh, she said, oh, hi, how are you? Are you an actor? And I said, yeah. She said, are you represented? I said, no. She said, well, you might be right for this picture that Norman Jewison is casting. And oh my God. I have a client who... Just based on looking at you and hearing you say hello? Based, exactly. Exactly. This is like a story from the movies. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's my Tonight Show story. You it know? is. It's, uh, uh, she took a look at me. She, she said, would you be interested in going in for this movie? And, I mean, this is, this is how powerful the agency was. Uh, uh, she had a client who was supposed to audition for mm-hmm. Norman Jewison the next day, mm-hmm. but he had just booked another film and wasn't going to be available for the movie, so why audition? The agency, not the casting director, the agency said, we'll plug you into his slot because they were big right. enough. to. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were the 900-pound gorilla. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the next day I went in to read for a part in a movie about Vietnam veterans uh, being directed by Norman Jewison, starring Bruce Willis. And... Uh, I get there, and I'm the only guy in the room I never heard of. And, uh, <laughs> That's a great line. And, and there's not even a casting director. It's just Norman and somebody to read with. Oh, my God. And I come in, and uh, I had read the script, and uh, he said, okay, before you read it, are there any questions you have? And I said, well, there's this one scene in the movie where uh, there's a veteran's dance, and uh, they're pinning up on a bulletin board photos of the various characters in the movie mm-hmm. when they were in Vietnam. This mm-hmm. this movie takes place like 10 years after the mm-hmm. war. And uh, I said, uh, you, you know that the scene I'm talking about? He said, yeah. And I held up an 8 by 10 of myself in Vietnam. And I said, is this the sort of thing you were oh thinking of? Oh, my God. That's <laughs> genius. Oh, my God. And he looked at it and went, okay. <laughs> Oh, I hadn't even read yet, and I think I had the part. Oh, my God. And that scene in the movie uh-huh. opens with that photograph in <gasps> full screen. <laughs> oh, my God. That is genius. So, you know, a couple of days later, they called and said, you got the part. And my agent, wow. I mean, she wasn't my agent. She right, was right. just this agent. Uh huh. Um, she's like, I don't believe this. Because <laughs> I, had, I had maybe... Five lines on camera in my whole life, and uh, and oh she said God. she said you're co-starring with Bruce Willis in this, <laughs> and I said so. Does this mean you represent me? She said no. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Oh um, my God, it's a rough business. So here I so here I was. I'm starring, playing Bruce Willis's best friend in this movie, and and but it's not enough to get me an agent. <laughs> That's just the craziest thing. It is. It's crazy. Although I eventually they did sign me. They, oh, you signed with them? We were shooting the movie a few months later, mm-hmm. and uh, and Bruce's agent, who was one of the heads of this same agency, uh, came out to the set in Kentucky to to, to see him, mm-hmm. and was on set the day I had my big scene, and nice. it was also my last day on the movie, mm-hmm. so I did my big scene. I said goodbye to everybody. Next morning, got up, got on a plane, flew back to L.A. That was a Sunday. Monday morning, Bruce's agent. Uh, called and said, we want to represent you. 
And uh, <sighs> this is a Cinderella story. Now, I'm loving. But this. here's the thing: there's nothing particular that I did to make any of this happen. I walked out of an office precisely at the right time. If it had been 30 seconds earlier or later, I would have missed the introduction to Eileen Feldman, mm -hmm. and none of this would have happened. Okay, so now this is, this is good, because I want to ask you this question. Mm -hmm. Because I'm a fatalist. I believe in destiny, and mm -hmm. I believe that things happen for a reason. I believe there are no accidents. There are no mistakes. I also believe that we create opportunities by mm -hmm. taking action and by moving forward. So what do you think? I was sitting here listening to you say all that stuff going, well, I don't believe any of that crap. Yeah, uh, so, <laughs> th so I want to know. What, what, so why did you walk out? Why did I, you have that moment? Why, why? I'm a fairly firm believer in happenstance. Okay. That things happen because they happen and they don't happen because they don't happen. That said, I think you create a huge portion of your own luck mm -hmm. by always being ready. I agree with that. Yes, it mattered in terms of coincidence that I walked out that door and was introduced to Eileen Feldman at that moment. I don't believe uh, that. Uh, but I mean, it could have happened another way. I could have gone home five minutes earlier. But you did Maybe something else would have happened. Yes. Maybe something else would I, mm -hmm. I'm fairly convinced something would have because mm -hmm. I wasn't giving up. Mm -hmm. Bumping into her and getting introduced was a wonderful piece of good fortune, destiny, luck, whatever you want to call it. None of it mattered if I didn't show up in Norman Jewison's office and read well. And have that picture. Well, having the picture was, you know, Brilliant. serendipity. Mm -hmm. Because I wasn't being called in because I was a vet. I know, yeah. Nobody knew. Right. Norman Jewison didn't know until I held up the picture. But he would not have cast me based on the picture. No. If I hadn't of, read well. Of course not. It was of a major not. role in a major studio picture. I had to be ready. But I think doing that extra thing... Mm -hmm. Being creative, being thoughtful, going yep. that extra mile did not hurt you there oh, no, at no, all, no, right? No. Um, it made you stand out. Exactly. You, it made you special. Exactly. And if there's a key to things, I think it's that because Hollywood is filled to overflowing with better actors than me and, and people uh, who are. Uh, it is. I see people doing stuff. That absolutely stuns me, and I don't know how they do it. You're and pretty they stunning. Can't get a job. Well, I agree with that. That's true, absolutely. But you're pretty stunning. Don't well, you don't have to go there. But I, but I get your point. Yeah. That there are a lot of people who have the talent that aren't getting talent work. by itself mm -hmm. guarantees you talent. Yeah. <laughs> and Profound. That's, you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> Should write that down. Um, <laughs> we we have it. We we we're recording this thing here. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, you do have to do something extra, and some of it is very very small. If I had the Jewison interview to do again, absolutely, I would bring that photograph because mm -hmm. even without any real experience at the time, I knew this is enough to pique interest without going overboard. Mm -hmm. If I had walked in there in my old Marine <laughs> combat Just had that thought. <laughs> uniform, he'd have looked at me like I was a moron <laughs> and made a snap judgment that this is not the kind of guy I want to <laughs> hang around with. Yeah. There's a subtlety to standing out mm -hmm. that can be effective. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just, you know, having a little wit. I remember if I was going in to read for a director, I would mm -hmm. look up other things they had done. Mm -hmm. And then I would find people I knew that had worked with him before mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and 
I would take that name and I would go in and they would say, uh, uh, Jim, this is this is Roger Kellner. He's our he's our director. And I go, oh, oh, you're Roger Kellner. Well, Glenn Morshower said you were a little squatty fella. Oh no! Uh, <laughs> and it breaks the ice. And uh. it, every time I've ever done it, it's I've felt like okay, I'm taking a little risk here. That is a risk. What's life without a little risk? I love that. Did it ever backfire? No. Never, mm-hmm. never. You know, sometimes I lie. I got a, I, I got, or not necessarily lie, but I, I got a, I got a great part in a John Dahl movie called um, Joyride, mm-hmm. uh, because the character was a sheriff from Wyoming, and I went in and I said, I said, well, this is great. I, I get to use my Wyoming accent because uh, I was born in Wyoming, mm-hmm. and he's like, oh, you were born in Wyoming. Oh, great, wonderful, and I got the part, mm-hmm. and on the DVD he talks about. Oh, this guy, we got to play the sheriff. He's actually from Wyoming. And also, I I was born in Wyoming and moved to Texas six months later. (laughs) But you find the little tiny keys to the little tiny keyholes. Love it. You don't bulldoze the door down. Uh, You just, you find a way to connect with them as people, to connect with them in a way that uh, makes them feel like, a, you're going to be good for the movie, mm-hmm. and B, you're going to be good for the company. And uh, now that a few people actually know who I am. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just I, a few. You know, people call up and offer me jobs, and I go, how, do, how does he know who I am? And, you know, if if somebody calls up and I got a, I got a thing to, to audition recently for a show. You still Very, audition? Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Not all the time. Uh-huh. I get a lot of offers, mm-hmm. straight offers, uh-huh. but... It's weird because uh, I thought you hit a certain point and then you don't have to do that anymore. Right. Which isn't true, you know. Yeah. Uh, you hit a certain point and you don't always have to do it anymore. Right. But you still have to do it some. And uh, usually the bigger Mike, the Michael project, Imperioli told us when they're dicks, you have to. You still have to audition for them. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about it yeah. like that. But, you know, it's a little weird mm. to audition for CSI Dubuque. <laughs> The same week that Guillermo del Toro calls you personally and says, we've never met, but I'd like you to be in my movie. It's a little weird. Yeah. I get and it, it can put a little that's monkey the great, on That's the great humbler, though, maybe. Well, that's, yeah. Right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And you need that. Your humanity. You need that. I don't mm-hmm. like it, but yeah. you need it. Yeah, yeah. So do you ever not get what you audition yeah. for? Yeah. Really? Really? All the time. I there's tons of stuff that I don't get. No kidding. And what's most disturbing is the stuff that I think I'm probably best for. That's the most right for me. Mm -hmm. Is often the stuff I don't get. And then every once in a while, somebody calls up and offers me a part that's completely unlike anything I've ever done. Like, Uh, can you can you tell me an example of something like totally surprised you that you got? Um, I got a straight offer a few months ago to do a character on Bones, who was. Completely unlike anything. It was basically a malevolent version of Lenny and of Mice and Men. I'd never played a part like that before. Uh How was playing Big Daddy? Oh, my God. (sighs) Big Daddy scared the but. Jesus I mean, because that is such, we know that role. We yeah. know it. We yeah. know it so yeah. well. It was extraordinary. And that was that was one of those how do they know who I am things. They called up and said, come to Big Daddy. I, I, what? Do you know... Who did you call? Uh, 
because I'm not sure I'm were so stellar. I was telling them the bat story um, oh. that, uh, that how you write about you were doing like a daily journal on Facebook and and took us through it and uh, uh, it was great. It was terrifying. You know that I had seen the film mm-hmm. any number of times. I'd read the play, mm-hmm. but neither of those things had happened within the last 30 years. Right. And so I thought, I know it. And they offered me the part. I said, absolutely, yes. I went out, bought a copy of the play. I read the first act and went, wait a minute, did I just sign up for a bit part? I'm not even in the first act. And then I read act two. Mm. And I, I thought, I don't know if I can do this. This is so big. This is such a huge role. This is so many lines. I don't know if I've got it in me. Not to mention, it's a monument in American theater Absolutely. that everybody has an opinion about. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it scared me right up until the day we closed the show. But I probably have never enjoyed myself so much on stage. Wow. Once we opened, I was terrified until we got open. And, and next to the last performance, uh, there was one speech that I finally got right. <laughs> <laughs> So, but the story I love best, and it it may fit in with what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, years ago, I got a call to audition for a show that didn't last very long called Nasty Boys. It was Dennis Franz and Benjamin Bratt, mm. and uh, and it was about an elite police team in Las Vegas, and it lasted about twelve episodes. Post NYPD Blue. Post NYPD. No. Oh, before. before. Oh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was an ensemble piece mm-hmm. in the sense that there were no real big star parts. Mm-hmm. They were all working together. But Dennis had just come off some uh, a cool recurring role on on uh, Hill Street Blues, and uh, uh, so this was you know late late. I mean, this would have been early nineties, ninety two something uh-huh. like that. They called me up to come in and audition, and I said, "What's the part?" And they said, "It's a Colombian drug dealer named Cortazon." And I said, "What?" I just can't picture you. <laughs> I am I am I'm just this white bread guy from Texas who hasn't a Latino molecule in his body. And I said, I what? I can't play that. I mean, there are some things, there are some ethnic parts, Irish or Scottish mm-hmm. or something like that that I've played that I feel fairly confident with, but I said I I can't pull off Colombian. <laughs> and uh, they said, "Well, they want to see you anyway." And I thought well, I can't do it. I, I I cannot do what they're asking me to do, mm-hmm. which is play Colombian. Mm-hmm. So I put on a suit and uh, my tallest black cowboy boots and a bolo tie, mm-hmm. and I went in and I played him with a Texas accent. Nice. And I got the part. <laughs> and they rewrote him as a Texan named Whetstone. Oh, my God. I love that. But when I went into audition, there were all these people there all dolled up to look Colombian. See, this is it, Jim. You're giving me the takeaway right here. It's like... You have to know who you are. Yeah. And above and beyond, always thinking, always... That this creative approach, uh, I'm loving this. Because you're always standing out. You're always being true to yourself. And giving them more than they're asking for. So you walked in, you dressed the part. You I went dressed in, the you, part the way I saw the way what you I saw, could play. You committed to something, you mm-hmm. went with it, and, and is that what you do in auditions as a rule? As a rule, yeah. yeah. You'll, dre- you'll dress well, the part? Well, 
No, I don't dress. I don't dress now. For stuff you don't much. have to anymore. But I but mean, back in the day when you were it, when, you, I, when I people would, didn't know I who would you were, dress to suggest, uh-huh. not to prove. Right. Okay. Um, That's good. As a general rule, I don't put costumes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, commercials, you know, I, I I don't really do them anymore unless mm-hmm. they ask for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but back in the day. Yeah, you know, if you got to dress up like a tomato, you figure out a way to do it. <laughs> but that's, uh, uh, you know, I, I went I went on a commercial audition for they wanted mountain climbers, mm-hmm. and I showed up in a parka, and and uh, big heavy mucklucks and all this stuff, and everybody else was in lederhosen. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like outtakes from Sound of Music. And I thought, oh, man, did I ever mess this up. And then it turned out the commercial was about climbing Mount Everest. So everybody else looked like an idiot. <laughs> I didn't get it, but uh, but at least I felt, you know, okay, I, I picked right. But for film and television, I, I don't... Uh, if you can't do the part mm-hmm. with authenticity mm-hmm. and humanity and a point of view and high stakes. If you can't do that, they're not going to cast you because you got a great cowboy hat. <laughs> but, you know, you're making me think of things that I hadn't thought of in this line. Yeah. Years ago, I got called in to read for the part of the funny bartender on a new Western show called Paradise. Okay. And uh, and I, this was at a point where uh, jobs were few and far between. And... I wanted the job, but I didn't want to play the funny bartender. I wanted to be a bad guy. So I went to the audition dressed like the bad guy. And, I mean, black hat, black shirt, bandana. Uh, wow. uh, I'm not going to wear a gun into an audition, <laughs> but I'll take an extra belt and sling it on loosely so it hangs down like a gun belt. Uh Wow. I go in, I read for the funny bartender. Uh-huh. I They say, thank you. I leave. I head out, and I'm halfway across the parking lot, and somebody runs out and says, hey, would you come back? They want you to read for the bad guy. Oh, wow. And I got it. Oh, wow. So uh, it's I sometimes you have, to, you have to look at what you're offered and say, this isn't exactly what I want, or this isn't exactly what I can do. How did Third Rock from the Sun happen? Because that seems so out of your genre. My wife was casting it. Uh, that helps. Now, well, we were together 19 years. She cast me twice. Oh. Three times. Three times, excuse me. Three times. Wow. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, that whole okay. nepotism thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. not always. <laughs> uh, and in fact, there would be times she'd say, help me make a list of names, because uh, that's what casting directors seem uh-huh. to do most of the time is make lists of, so they can check who's available, who isn't. Mm-hmm. She said, help me make a list for these characters. And I said, what are the characters? She tells me, and, and we're making lists. And I, I said, oh, well, this guy, what about me? And she goes, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> You'd be perfect. Why didn't I think of you? I don't know. Why didn't you think of me? Uh, and uh, but Third Rock was uh, uh, that was a case where I they they I don't know whether it was her doing getting me the audition or my agents or whatever, mm-hmm. but uh, they did call me in and uh, 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 and I just I had this I read I read the scenes and I thought. 
I have a voice for this guy. He's completely different f from me. Mm -hmm. And I said, I, I, I can't, if I just play him like me, mm -hmm. I don't think I can make him very funny. Mm -hmm. But I said, I hear, the way I hear these lines, I hear this old character actor from the 30s named Ned Sparks. And, and I said, I'm going to play him like Ned Sparks. And so uh, um, the, in the audition, the uh, uh, French Stewart's character uh, uh, says, uh, uh, he says something to me, and, I, and I'm, I'm just supposed to say, oh, well, I don't, I don't believe they do. And instead I said, I don't believe they do. <laughs> and they started rolling on the floor just from, the lines weren't funny. And, uh, and we ended up not, I got the part, but they, we ended up not doing that. But I, that was a case where I thought, I, I don't think I bring anything special to the table if I just do it normally. This is, this is perfect, Jim. <laughs> no, it is. Because every, you're, you're, on a, you're on a trajectory here that is exact. It's all linear. I mean, every, you, this, there's this common thread in every single story that you're telling. And it's really helpful. Well, um, good. Otherwise, yeah. I'm wasting your time no, here. No, it's, it's excellent. Well, you're very entertaining <laughs> oh, also. Thank you. Um, okay, so now tell me about George Reeves and what this ah. is about. Because this is oh, very interesting. Oh, that's where we started, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, this is really <laughs> interesting to me. Well, I was writing for that film magazine in New okay. York, Films and Review. And uh, uh, one day the editor came to me and said... Um, We've gotten a lot of requests from readers for a biographical piece on George Reeves. Would, is that something you'd be interested in? And I was a big fan of his as a kid, and mm -hmm. I said, absolutely. So I started researching what was going to be a 10-page article, mm -hmm. and I just kept finding stuff that seemed more and more and more interesting. And, you know, there was... There was the whole mystery of the mystery of his death, died, yeah, uh, which was a large part of what was interesting. But I found a lot of other stuff too, and I decided I'm going to turn this into a book. And um, uh, the good news is that uh, I, I was able to uh, interview an awful lot of wonderful people uh, in the process. The bad news is I've been doing it for 40 years. This is crazy. I mean, how, how is that even? I mean, I wrote, it took me 13 years to write my book. But wait, this is 40 years. Well, I spent the first, mm, let me see. I spent the first 10 years or so writing and researching. I'm kind of a completist, mm -hmm. and that's part of, part of the problem. Uh, I, I've never quite found enough. Um, but I spent, I didn't have any work to speak of, so I spent an awful lot of time researching. I spent I spent months in the Pasadena City Library basement going through clippings that are all online now. Right, but right. This was this was the eighties, mm -hmm. and um, um, and then uh, I I I got married, mm -hmm. and I started writing television, mm -hmm. and then I started acting, mm -hmm. and I started doing. And all of those things began taking up lots and lots of time. Mm -hmm. And the more I did the acting, the more time it took out took mm -hmm. up because I was getting more of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, you know, as shocked as I was at how much I was finally, after a certain period, beginning to work, mm -hmm. uh, I always thought, well, you know, I've got plenty of time to write this book because there's all this dead time between jobs. 
but the dead time began to get thinner and thinner and thinner. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then at some point I'm, I haven't counted, but I'm sure I probably passed the number of things George Reeves ever did as an actor. (laughs) And he's incredibly famous. And, uh, you're incredibly uh, famous. Well, I ended up, I ended up with this, I ended up with the career he might have had if things had turned out differently. And, uh, uh, certainly a more long-lasting career, um, uh, not as iconic by any means, but it's... Uh, well, not I everybody still... gets to put on tights and fly. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I... Um, uh, but for me, I've been lucky in that uh, nothing I ever did made me so notable in a specific mm. niche that I couldn't do anything else. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, maybe the luckiest thing that's happened with me is I've been able to use whatever versatility I have mm-hmm. to play different kinds of things mm-hmm. and go from a sitcom to Deadwood and and uh, uh, go from being a really evil person to being a very beloved character and and back and forth. Um, there was a time when you couldn't get away with that. Mm-hmm. Once once they knew you from one thing, you were kind of stuck there. Right. And uh, which was his tragedy. But um, I still work on the book. I I I'm, I try to do something every day. I don't always manage it, but uh, I'm waiting until everybody who ever heard of him dies. <laughs> so so it's a marketing. So can plot. you tell? Can you can you tell? Like, how did he die? Like, what's the truth there? I, I'm I'm. Absolutely convinced that he killed himself. Yeah. Uh, Didn't they uh, uh, do a movie with yeah. Ben Affleck or something? Hollywood Land? Yeah, Hollywood Land. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was I was the biographical uh, uh, advisor on that. Oh, cool. On that. And uh, uh, it's you know, anytime someone kills himself, there's going to be somebody in family and friends who say, "No, he would yeah. never do that. Right. He would never do it." It's mm-hmm. a given. Mm-hmm. And someone who was as iconic as he was mm-hmm. in a beloved character. And for I, those of you who are too young, he was yeah, Superman. On television in the fifties. <laughs> okay. And it's still on. Yeah. You, know, you can still mm-hmm. watch it. It's it was such a popular series. Justin, have you ever seen George Reese? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um but not only did people love the character, they loved the way he played it. I had such and, a crush on yeah. him. Oh God! And f- from everything I've heard, pretty much everybody who ever met him in person did too. I bet. Uh, uh, he was he was apparently a genuinely good guy, mm. and uh, but genuinely good guys who get to play Superman don't kill themselves. Yeah, that's that's kind of the 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 common uh, uh, common knowledge. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, the forensics all support suicide even the things that look like they don't i don't want to get into a whole long spiel Mm -hmm. about that but i started out thinking he had been murdered and everything i found really turned me around and i was yeah the murder's good for a book uh you know Mm -hmm. uh, i've uncovered what really happened Uh what really happened is what the police said really happened Mm. um uh it was it was a case of of uh, uh depression meets way too much alcohol one night mm-hmm. and and a triggering uh event, uh, event and mm-hmm. boom uh uh if you take any of those three things out of it and maybe, he's alive well not now he'd be 102 but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um yeah so mm-hmm. i still work on that and uh one of the good things about it taking so long is that i started 
very early when a lot of people who knew him were still alive. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I got to. So you got to interview everybody? James Cagney and Frank Sinatra. Oh, my and, God. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, uh, half the cast of Gone with the Wind. And, you wow. know, and if I were starting now, I, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, even the people who played children in things he was in are old people now. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna finish it or die trying and uh, yeah no you have to finish uh, it that's but uh, uh, and you know I still love that stuff I still love film history I love digging into old files and finding stuff and 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 discovering oh my God he was with this person at that event and oh that's why you know just. Do you know Ileana Douglas? Are you friends? I don't know her. I know who I, she okay, is. Okay, I have to introduce you to each other because she's she has the same passion mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, Ileana shares yeah, your passion. I see passion her on TCM a lot. Yeah, and, uh, you guys have to talk. Yeah. You guys will n- you'll be up for like a month without sleeping. You'll yeah. have so much to talk about. Okay, so I, I have a couple of last questions for you, Jim. Mm-hmm. So is there anybody in your life that has made you starstruck? Is there anybody that, because uh, you've worked with so many, I mean, <laughs> look where you started with Bruce Willis. But I mean, is there anybody that like takes your breath away or that you? Um, Most of the people that in speaking particularly of actors who take my breath away uh are dead are gone i yeah. knew you were gonna say yeah Damn it. Uh, <laughs> you know I, I i i never lost my love for john wayne i think he was one of the great screen actors of all time despite mm-hmm. the fact that a lot of people don't think so mm-hmm. um i don't think he had a lot of range but within it i thought he was brilliant what do you think was his iconic what do you what was his what's your favorite role of his do you have one the searchers mm. That's my favorite film as well. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, um, and, you know, my absolute idols were Wayne and Lawrence Olivier and Bogart and Buster Keaton mm-hmm. and Groucho Marx and Robert Mitchum and Toshiro Mifune. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they're, they're, they're all gone. Mm-hmm. There are people I like now. Is there, yeah, of, of, of the actors that still roam the earth, mm-hmm. is there anybody that takes your breath away? Um. Uh, well, I saw Ian McKellen do Amadeus on Broadway. So did I, yes. And it was the single greatest acting performance I've ever seen in my life. Okay, how about walking into the theater and he's sitting in the chair? Yeah. I yeah. mean, th- from before anything happens, my mind blown. Yeah, there, yeah. He's sitting, He's for you guys, he's sitting on the stage in a chair reading a newspaper, I think. Yeah, yeah. And and this goes on for the entire time that people are. Fa- he never breaks character the whole time. People, mm-hmm. I mean, it gives me goosebumps thinking yeah, about it. He was yeah. so brilliant. Yeah, and uh, uh, I, I've seen him on stage a couple of times since. And mm. but yeah, he takes my breath away. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, I, I marvel at at Benedict Cumberbatch mm-hmm. and uh, and Meryl Streep. I just think is one of the most genius performers who was ever born. Um, uh, I was talking with somebody uh, last night about about uh, Sophie's Choice, which I, I think is one of the three or four greatest performances ever filmed. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and I, you know, I haven't gotten to work with a lot of people that I was sort of idolatrous mm-hmm. toward. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I really loved Nick Nolte, and I got to work with him, and he was a great guy. Was he? No, I was so. I I was just a day player on his movie, and he was he was so welcoming and Mm. so. uh, uh, What film? 
Blue Chips. Mm. Uh, it's a basketball picture directed mm -hmm. by William Friedkin. And uh, uh, it's one of my movies I have stories about. But yeah. uh, the, um, uh, you know, I, I this brings me around to, uh, I get, I really get my back up when people talk about actors being jerks. Uh, I've met, I've worked with two certified jerks in my career. Uh, and one that I thought was who later proved himself not to be. Nice. And uh, two of the three are very famous names. Mm -hmm. um, but virtually everybody else I've ever worked with in this business, if they've made a personal impression on me mm -hmm. at all, and I'm talking mainly about the famous ones, right? Uh, have been extraordinarily decent, kind people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think anybody who has ever spent a minute in the presence of Tom Hanks or Mark, oh. or Mark Harmon or Lee Horsley or... Uh, uh, I, I don't know, Nick Nolte, he was great with me. Mm -hmm. I, he's got an interesting reputation, mm -hmm. so uh, mm -hmm. uh, I, I can't generalize. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, uh, uh, you know, I did, I did, a, I did, of all things, an episode of Father Dowling Mysteries with David Warner, uh, who, this great lion of the British theater, and I'm doing a Father Dowling with him. And uh, by the time we wrapped the show uh i'm saying goodbye to him with tears in my eyes because he's such a good guy isn't that and nice? i'm not gonna see him again oh and and then like five years later i bump into him at the titanic premiere <laughs> and he's like jim how are you oh. i can't believe this man remembers me oh. and and uh it it's the this business is filled with great people mm -hmm. and uh and i'm i yeah i get my back up when people say oh those movie stars are all a bunch of jerks and selfish bastards and all that and hasn't been my experience i i love that how 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 is fame for you and don't say that you're because you have rabid fans how how is that for you moving through the world it's very compartmentalized okay for example i i attend a lot of personal appearance things, mm -hmm. uh, particularly involved with Supernatural. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I the show comic -Con, Is that Comic-Con? Comic -Con, yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, and I, I do a lot of these events. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I appear at my first one in Birmingham, England. And uh, I come out, there's 1,500 people there, and they're treating me like Elvis just stepped out. <laughs> And I can't believe it. I mean, how I, long ago is this? Oh, this is eight years, something uh -huh. like that. Uh, I can't believe it. I, now, first of all, I'm a realist. I know that you kick me off the show, the show keeps going. You kick off the two hunks who are in the lead, <laughs> the show's dead. I got it. I got that. Um, I didn't just fall off the turnip truck. I know how it works. But. Nonetheless, people are standing and cheering, and I'm unprepared for it, <laughs> utterly unprepared for it. I do the weekend there in Birmingham. I go back to London. Mm -hmm. I'm walking around sightseeing in London, and I'm going back to my hotel. I decide to cut through the Haymarket. I get to the Haymarket, and there's like 
15,000 people crammed into it, and I don't know what's going on. And uh, I'm looking around, and I just see everybody's faced in the same direction. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to find out what's going on. So I worm my way through this huge crowd, like the Hollywood Bowl letting out, mm-hmm. and uh, and I get close enough to the front to see. That's what it was. You were going to the Egyptian. That's what yeah. I, you. That's what I was thinking of before. Okay. The um, uh, I get close enough to the front to mm-hmm. see that what's happening is there's a theater at the, on one side of the Haymarket, and it's the premiere of the Sex and the City movie. Uh-huh. And I go, oh, okay. So everybody's crowded around to see the stars, and I work my way back through the crowd and go back to my hotel without, as far as I know, one single person in that crowd knowing who I was. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. It balances itself. That's very funny. I walk into one room, everybody knows me. That's very funny. I walk funny. into another room, and it's, may I help you, sir? <laughs> so what's it like, like at the airport? Are you getting special treatment restaurant? If they, no. If, well, uh, no. No. You go to the airport. You're not. You're well, not getting okay. ushered. Let me let me let me backtrack. Okay. I, I was dropping off. <laughs> I was dropping off a rental car in Albany last uh-huh. week, and and I went up to the counter and uh, I said I gotta I gotta return a car and and the guy went, Are you Jim Beaver? And it's some middle aged guy. And I said, Yeah. He said, Wow, I'm a big fan. And mm-hmm. and it was nice. It was you know, and. Uh, it still surprises me because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't happen so often that I get used to it. Mm-hmm. And then he really did help me with my car and made sure I got a great rate for the one I was picking up. And mm-hmm. and so that's the only example I can think of right off the bat of special treatment. Do you you, you don't use it like for restaurant reservations and stuff like that? I wouldn't know how like to do that. You wouldn't know how to do that. I mean, I wouldn't know technically how to do it mm-hmm. and I wouldn't know how to make me do it uh so you don't no no i mean first off uh i don't want to be the guy that calls up and says hi this is jim beaver <laughs> and i need uh a really special table tonight mm-hmm. uh and have them say who <laughs> i don't i don't need that i got enough insecurity as it is so you're not going to craig's and they're parting the seas for you to sit down no oh, next to joan collins I, I went i went to i went to the premiere of a movie that i had single card main title billing in and i walked down the red carpet and not one person <laughs> did more than glance at me <laughs> i if i if it's a supernatural event right they go insane. Right, right. Uh, but uh, if it's, if it's uh, uh, you know. Single card I, I do, billing, I, that's I hysterical. Do a lot of, I do a lot of, of, of uh, premieres and things like that. Mm-hmm. And the only, way I, the only way I get any attention is if a publicist makes the people look at me. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't happen because I walk up. That's uh, absolutely hysterical. Okay, so I have one last question. Mm-hmm. So. Well, you've kind of already covered it. I I have this thing at the end of the show where I ask if you have a guilty pleasure to kind of humanize our heroes mm-hmm. um, as as being like us, having some shame and not being perfect <laughs> all the time. So you've already told some good stories about walking out on the red carpet and nobody knows who you are. But can you think of anything? Do you have a guilty pleasure, something that you do 
eat, consume, wear, listen to, watch that you th- are like that you go, oh God, I hope nobody ever knows hmm. that. Uh, there are things that some people would go, are you kidding? Okay. But they aren't necessarily things I wouldn't want anybody to know about. Well, I mean, I have my head in a bag of Cheetos on Facebook. So, I mean, I put mine right out there. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. But I'm not exactly proud of the fact that I love them, but I do. <laughs> um, I, uh, I will defend the Three Stooges to <laughs> the death. <laughs> yeah. oh. I... I, 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 I I started out as a kid loving them. I still love them, and I I sometimes fixate on them. Okay, Curly or Shemp? Curly. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I can't. I can't do the Shemp thing. I, yeah. I couldn't do it then. I can't do it now. I can't. I yeah, can't yeah. do the Shemp. <laughs> <laughs> do you know about fake Shemps? No. Fake Shemps are something they use in in movies occasionally. In real life. Uh, Shimp died in the middle of making one of their short films. Okay. And they had to finish it. So they got a fake shimp <laughs> and they would shoot the scenes with this guy's just hit, from the back, the back of his head. And and uh, uh, and they would steal lines from other movies to to to, <laughs> to have him talk. And uh, uh, and because they were making these things like, you know, one a week, I guess. Uh they made several Three Stooges shorts that there were only two Stooges in, but there was a fake shimp. <laughs> well, now the term uh-huh. has has kind of been taken up, and whenever they've got to use a fake uh, back of the head of somebody uh-huh. because the actor's not available or something, it's called a fake shimp. I love it. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's a great story. All right, well, I, I could... I don't know how long we've been talking, but I could talk to you forever. It's been my absolute thrill and pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this, Jim. Well, you Jim. don't have to thank me. I would do anything for you. And you have done many things for me, and I appreciate that very much. Oh. You, uh, your, your talent is for all to see, and um, in so many ways, in your writing, in your in your playwriting, in your screenwriting, in your acting. But um, but your humanity um, supersedes all of that a gazillion fold. You're just a beautiful man. Oh, thank you. And um, I'm honored to know you and you. to call you a friend. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. So, Justin, uh, Jim Beaver's quite the quite the thing, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, he had so much to say that blew my mind. I, I enjoyed that time with him so much. Um, I think for me, the takeaway is to always be prepared, but to also be creative and thoughtful in your preparation. I think he he knocked a bunch of doors down uh, by the way he approached things. Um, do you take that into account when you're when you're like going for an interview or prepping for a gig? Uh, you mean just like making sure I completely prepare for it type of thing? Yeah, like do you do you like wing it or do you prepare before you go in? What what's your I'm, style? I'm a little mix of both. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on on what the situation is. I feel like if maybe it's a company where I really need to like get a background or whatever, you know, I'll go online, check all that stuff out, you know, get 
get snippets and, and try and get, uh, you know, more like I know of, of who they are and what they do. Um, and that way, like maybe that's a little bit more impressive. Uh, if I feel like it's, they don't need that, that company doesn't, I'll, I'll probably go in a little bit more free style. Just kind of, yeah, you know, that makes it. sense. And I've also, I've, I found that if I say something personal that shows that I've been paying attention to the person I'm talking to in any situation, um, it makes people feel like they matter and, I think it opens their mind and opens their heart to know that you took made that effort and that you care enough to go there. And uh, so Jim certainly um, <laughs> was incredibly prepared for everything, and it shows in the cr incredible body of work he's had. Um, anyway, it was a fantastic uh, time with him. Thanks so much for sharing it with me, Justin. Until next week. This is Vicki Abelson's The Road Taken. You've been listening to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken. We'll be here every Tuesday night, 6 o'clock Pacific Time, 9 Eastern Time, 8 Central. And yes, there are, th Justin just reminded me, you can find us at, at Vicki Abelson on Twitter, at Vicki Abelson on Instagram, Vicki Abelson on the Facebook, and VickiAbelson.com on the internet. So say hi, check us out, follow us or me, and I'll send you to Justin, and we'll do that thing there. Have a great week. This is Shelly Pikett, and that's my song, Bitch. Well, the one I wrote with Meredith Brooks. I tell all about how it happened in Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, a memoir about my adventures and misadventures on the front line of the songwriting business. You can also hear about Christina, Brittany, Keith Urban, and many more. But my book isn't just about songwriting. It's about passion, pursuit, perseverance for any dream you may have. Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, available on Amazon or a bookstore near you. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh my God, oh yes! She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicki's writing, he's writing, knocked me out. In, in a good way, not not like Cosby. Too soon? Vicki wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. Please join me for The Road Taken, celebrity maps to success for those of us still seeking ours. Tuesdays, 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 Central, 9 p.m. Eastern on Conversations Radio Network. Yes, it's Superman, strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way.